Hello there, wherever you're watching, and welcome to the UFLX podcast. I'm Ewan Healy, and with me is my co-host, Gabriel Hedengren. Gabriel, how are you doing? Hi, yeah, yeah, I'm all good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. been really enjoying a really busy week of elections. We've just come off the back of French municipal elections, um, Polish presidential elections, Spanish regional elections, and elections in North Macedonia, and we'll be covering all of that and more in the rest of the podcast. And then Croatia. Did you Croatia as well, Croatia? yeah, gosh. There's yeah. just too much to, even I can't keep up, and I'm supposed to, obviously, for your <laughs> and this podcast, but yeah, but it's, yeah, it's super exciting compared to the sort of inevitable drought in spring. Yeah. So in this episode, we've got uh, our correspondent from Poland back to tell us about the presidential election. Uh, Michal's going to update us on all the things that went on in the runoff election on Sunday. On top of that, one is a particularly exciting interview for us because our podcast managing editor, Polychronos Karampolas, will be on the podcast to talk to us about elections in North Macedonia. And Gabe and I will try our best, of course, to behave in front of our boss. Yeah, and I do that by muting myself. (laughs) (laughs) The whole interview. It's probably for the best. On top of that, this mini election season has also seen regional elections in Galicia and the Basque Country in Spain. And I have caught up with a journalist, Guy Hedgeco, to talk about everything that's been going on in those two regions of Spain. But first, let's take a little tour around European news, shall we, Gabriel? Yes, let's go. Let's start in France. Following difficult results in municipal elections for Emmanuel Macron's party, President Macron has attempted to renew his image by changing his prime minister and reshuffling his cabinet. Macron, affiliated with the liberal Renew Europe group in the European Parliament, has surprised many by appointing a relatively unknown lawmaker as his prime minister. His appointee, Jean Castex, is a former mayor of a small town on the Spanish border called Prad and is a member of parliament who joined La Republique en Marche earlier this year from the centre-right Les Républicains. Amusingly, um, well, I found this quite amusing anyway, is that Jean Castex did not actually have a Wikipedia page in English when he was appointed prime minister uh, last week. In more controversial news, uh, Macron has received quite heavy criticism for his appointment of the new interior minister in his cabinet, who has outstanding allegations of rape and sexual assault against him. So undoubtedly, discussions about whether this cabinet is good for Mr. Macron will carry on. Yeah, I feel like with Castex, it's like him not having a Wikipedia page is like either a really good thing or like a really shady bad thing. I guess we'll have to see. When I read that he had been appointed, I just saw the breaking news. I typed in his name in Google just to learn a little bit more about him and and nothing. Um, (laughs) But we will, of course, learn lots about him in the coming days. So now let's go to Croatia. Uh, where parliamentary elections took place on the 5th of July, with governing centre-right HDC retaining a plurality, receiving 1% and five seats more than they received in the 2016 election. Meanwhile, the Restart Coalition, uh, that's capitalised, by the way, led by the centre-left SDP, had a disappointing night, taking 24.9% of the vote, which is almost 9% down on uh, what they got in the previous election. Obviously a big disappointment for them, um, their final seats tally was their lowest this century, in fact. And inevitably, I guess, the leader of the coalition, Davor Bernardic, resigned shortly after. 
Meanwhile, National Conservative DPMS and the Green Left Coalition Mojemo both performed strongly in what was their first ever elections in Croatia. DPMS received 11%, Mojemo 7%. Other party that I guess is of note to, to share with you all is the Conservative Most. They saw vote share fall once more, having gone from 13.1 to 9.9, and now just 7.4% in five years. So almost halved their result in five years, that is. For a bit more background about uh, the Croatian election and Croatian party politics, uh, you can go back and listen to our last uh, podcast episode where we interviewed Europlex Croatia correspondent Luka Jukic about it. So do check that out for more context. Now, we've been bringing you news ahead of Belarus's presidential election in August, and this week has been a really busy one again, where the Belarusian Central Electoral Commission has announced its decision on who to register for the upcoming presidential elections. As expected, opposition candidate Valery Tsepkalo has been denied registration following the CEC refusing to recognize more than half of the signatures that he presented as part of his registration. Alongside this, uh, Viktor Babarika the ex-banker who set a new record uh, on number of signatures, only to then be detained in a security service prison after handing in his signatures, has been denied registration due to accusations from the government of him receiving foreign financial aid and also that he had not fully declared his taxes. So Carlo and Babarika were the two opposition candidates with the broadest support base, uh, as even government-conducted opinion polling had shown. You know, opinion polls had even suggested that Babarika's support could be approximately 50% uh, in Belarus. Babarika's campaign subsequently called for his voters to participate in the elections, regardless of whether he was able to compete, but to vote for any quote-unquote worthy candidate, and to prove to the incumbent, uh, President Lukashenko, that he is actually a minority president and not supported by the country as a whole. In addition, the entire country has again seen more peaceful protests of Belarusians showing solidarity with suppressed opposition, despite the government warning not to participate in them and calling them foreign orchestrated. And finally from Belarus, uh, the OSCE has announced that Belarus has failed to invite them uh, and their mission to observe the upcoming elections taking place in August. It's typical for countries to invite the observers two months in advance, but as this hasn't happened, this will be the first time that the OSCE has not got a monitoring mission in the country. Let's see how that goes. Now to Spain. So we will, of course, talk more about this in our chat with Guy, or, or you will at least, Ewan, uh, later on in the episode. But the short recap for our news bulletin is that Spain held regional elections in the Basque Country and Galicia. And in Galicia, center-right PP retained the majority for the fourth consecutive election, holding 41 of the 75 seats up for grabs. Galician left nationalists um, in BNG tripled the size of their delegation from 6 to 19 members. Uh, and this was at the expense of uh, a Podemos-affiliated left-wing party called Galicia en Común, who lost every single one of their seats. Ouch. Um, and Pedro Sanchez Pessoa, which is the Social Democratic Party currently leading the country's government, they saw their tally grow by one seat compared to the 2016 result. So in the Basque country, 
uh, it was a good day for supporters of increased autonomy for the region, with incumbent governing liberal PNV gaining three seats and the Basque nationalist E.H. Bildu gaining four. Vox, the National Conservative Party, won their first seat in the Basque Parliament ever. Meanwhile, the first-time centre-right alliance of Partido Popular and Ciudadanos underperformed greatly. We will discuss this in much more detail later on in the podcast, so stay on for that. Something else you should stay around for is our chat to Michal Kanowski, or at least Gabriel's chat to Michal, where in, in Poland, incumbent president Andrzej Duda has been narrowly re-elected as the president of Poland, receiving 51.03% to challenger Trzowski's 48.97%, so talk about a nail-biter, a much narrower victory than the ruling peace had hoped, and high turnout will perhaps be encouraging to Polish liberals who had hoped for a narrow upset but didn't get one. Poland's liberals have been suffering for some time under peace dominance in the country. We'll talk about talk to Michal in a second, but first we have some in electoral news from North Macedonia. July 15th this week, North Macedonia went to the polls for snap parliamentary elections. The election had been originally planned for April 12th, but it was obviously postponed due to the COVID-19 crisis. To update us on this newly renamed Balkan country's uh, election results, we are very excited to welcome our very own Polychronis Karampalas. Polychronis, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. So, first of all, uh, we're recording this just 24 hours after the election took place and uh, North Macedonia State Election Commission has had technical problems and things. So we are not 100% clear on everything and there's including rumors that the uh, SEC's website had actually been hacked. Um, do we have information on what the results are yet? Polychronis. So the results so far are uh, sadly unofficial, but uh, no huge upsets are expected. Right now, the coalition led by the centre-left SGSM uh, is ahead with uh, 46 out of the 120 seats. The coalition led by the centre-right VMRO DPMNE is right behind with 44. And uh, DUA is once again the largest Albanian party with 15 seats. The rest of the seats in parliament go to the coalition of uh, the Alliance of Albanian and Alternativa, which will have 12 MPs. The left-wing uh, Levica, which will enter parliament with two. And the centre-right Albanian DPA, which would have one seat. So we're once again looking at a coalition government since uh, six to MPs are needed for a majority. So is a sort of continuation coalition led by the Social Democrats the more likely result with the, the largest two parties essentially neck and neck? Do either of them really have an upper hand in, in negotiations? There have been some uh, suggestions and options so far. A grand coalition of the two main parties or a DUI-led government with an Albanian prime minister but uh, these are not really the most likely outcomes. Uh, both SDSM and TVMRO have said uh, no to the possibility of an Albanian PM, and the Grand Coalition has been released pretty much as a way to cut uh, DUI from the government altogether. Also, other scenarios that have uh, the left-wing Levican government with SDSM are not really that probable, since Levica is against the country named Sins and against NATO. Uh, therefore, the most probable outcome is either a government led by SDSM or by Evemero Dipemeni, with a DUI once again as a sort of a kingmaker. Well, what will be interesting to a lot of our listeners is 
what this could mean for the future of the, the Presper agreement um, and the name change, what would these results mean? You know, would a grand coalition mean that the name change was safe? What, what are we looking at as the likely scenarios here? It depends on whether the centre-left or the centre-right ends up forming a, a government. If SDSM Zoran Zaif uh, is once again Prime Minister, then the PRESPA agreement is of course safe and the new government will continue to implement it and have EU accession as an immediate goal. If Eve uh, Merodi Bimeni leads the new government, it is more complicated, as they have strongly opposed the agreement and the name change especially. Now, if they do enter into government, they would most likely have to do it so with the DUI, which supports the agreement. So, while it is not at all certain, yesterday's result seems to at least not jeopardize the PRESPA agreement, at least for now. So it does look like there is a parliamentary majority for the agreement in the end? With uh, the data we have so far, yes. But uh, that uh, will depend on the negotiations between uh, the parties and especially DUI and uh, VMRO. Well, this is all very interesting and we'll be keeping a, a close eye as the government is announced and of course keep an eye on our social media feeds for the latest updates from Polychronis there. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast, Polychronis. Thank you. Bye-bye. Are you listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that allows for reviews? Then please drop us a review and why not make it five stars as well? It will only take you a minute and it will mean the world for all of us at Europelex. Also, if you do like our podcast and you want to help us grow, be sure to also subscribe and, of course, tell everyone you know about us. If you have an idea for a segment, we'd love for you to share it with us. Any thoughts on topics we should be covering or, you know, any feedback, please shoot us an email at podcast at Hi everyone, so now our correspondent for Poland, Michelle is here with us to discuss uh, the Polish presidential elections, uh, whose second round was this past Sunday on the 12th of July. Yeah, hi Europe, Alex, M- Michal here. <laughs> hi Michelle, how are you? I'm fine, I'm um, just pretty tired after the election. Yes, gosh, two rounds uh, and so much activity around it and such a such a nail biter in the end so i guess just to start off as most of our listeners will know i'm sure uh, incumbent president um, duda of the law and justice party peace won the election with around 51 percent of the vote uh, he'll definitely be happy to be home and dry do you think will they be worried at all that the voting margin was so slim yeah, perhaps they will be a bit worried, but even though this is the eighth election in a row that they won with the new coalition. So, yeah, it's it's like another example that they are stronger and that they have more more people that support them than civic coalition. So maybe it, it wasn't just a huge win, but but still still a reassuring one. So in terms of Duda's and Peace's politics, do you think it'll have an impact on 
their program over, say, the next three, four years at all in a more moderate direction, a more conservative election? How do you think they'll use this win policy-wise? I think the bigger impact we are going to see on the government coalition, because now our government is formed by National Conservative Law and Justice Party, PEACE, right-wing to even far-right United Poland, Solidarna Polska, and Conservative Liberal uh, Agreement Party, Porozumienia. Yeah, and the, there was a problem with Porozumienie for peace before the previous date of the of the election, because Jarosław Gowin, leader of Porozumienie, said that he he doesn't like this idea of uh, conducting election in the time of coronavirus, and we are we we hear that this coalition is too radical for Porozumienie. And some uh, Porozumienie MPs are trying to vote for other option or something like that. So how will that, how will Law and Justice Party react to that then? Will they try and appease them by going even more towards the hard right? Or will they see the election result as sort of a mandate to go more, more to the centre given the relative strength of the the center uh, i don't believe that peace is peace will go to the center they will probably stay where they are right now but there are some rumors that uh, law and justice party is trying to find some new mps from the center right christian democratic uh, psl so maybe we'll see some flows between these parties yeah Interesting. So looking at the other side of this whole equation, Shaskovsky really did better than anyone would have expected, you know, a few months ago. So even if it wasn't wasn't enough in the end, he did have a real chance of winning. He did turn out a lot of people. How has that impacted the liberal part of Polish political society? Is there a sense of being more hopeful now, more energetic, or is there more a sense of, um, I don't know, dread and tiredness that they failed yet again, even if they were closer? Yeah, I, I would say the second, the second option. They are, there is a, we see a depression among these liberal voters and something like that. But yeah, and another, another but, but thing to say them is that they lost another election. They haven't won any election since 2014 local election in Poland. So it's a six years period. So I don't know, we'll see. Probably Trzaskowski will start his own political movement inside the civic coalition, which will be more liberal, more connected with the people in the cities. Yeah, we will see. Yes, and I guess you sort of touch upon this here. What the, what the results show is that Polish society is really divided and becoming increasingly, I guess, divided politically. What are these dividing lines and is there any way you see them 
evaporating over recent years. Do you think law and justice have any chance at, at breaking it down as they continue to sit in power? Well, I guess many people saw the map, the, this viral map of the partitions of Poland from the year 1795, because peace is winning in this Russian and uh, Austro-Hungarian part of annexation, because there are more villages, more cottages, more small cities, and peace, peace main supporters are living in the rural areas and so on. And that's the, another case of dividing lies in Poland, because Trzaskowski and whole civic coalition received more votes in the cities or even smaller towns or even bigger towns. But peace gets more uh, votes from voters in the villages, in the rural areas, in the old cities and small towns. So yeah, it's it's very complicated and our society is really divided. Yeah, and I guess this has just been enforced now by this this election campaign. Well, thank you for yeah. coming back on the podcast to give it giving us this quick little recap and thank you for all your hard work with covering these elections. There have been an insane amount of polls and you know great coverage on the night as well. So thank you for that and We'll hopefully have you back soon. Yeah, bye-bye. is run by a team of volunteers we aren't funded by any big donors and we definitely aren't an institution of the european union as some of our lovely followers do seem to think everything we do including this very podcast and our brilliant website is only possible with the help of supporters and generous ones at that uh, we want to do even more than we already do we've started sharing exclusive discussions special content and more via our patreon which you can access and help support our product from as little as one euro a month. Don't miss out on all of the exclusive juicy stuff and support us on Patreon. I'm very excited to be with our guest today. I'm of course Ewan Healy and my guest is Guy Hedgeco. He's the former editor of uh, El Pace English. He's now a writer and a journalist who covers Spanish politics uh, in a whole range of publications you'll definitely have heard of, like Politico, the BBC and the Irish Times. Uh, he's here to talk to us about elections in the Spanish regions of the Basque Country and Galicia, who've both had uh, elections this week. Guy, how are you doing? Fine, thanks, Ewan. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, fantastic to have you on the podcast. Let's just kick off with a little bit of contextualization for our listeners who might know Spanish regional politics um, as well as yourself. How do Spaniards as a whole feel at the moment about their government and about politicians, particularly because of the corona crisis? You know, Spain has been hit quite hard, and I think a lot of Europeans have, have seen that. And the Spanish economy has, has taken a, one of the bigger hits in Europe and yeah. are looking to be one of the major benefits from, beneficiaries from the, the European Recovery Fund. Who do Spaniards mm-hmm. blame for this? Is it, is it Pedro Sanchez himself? Is it the political class or their regional government, perhaps? Well, it, I mean, it's a good question because uh, Spaniards are very divided over this. I mean, Spanish politics has been very polarised 
over the last well, last few years, but particularly over the last few months and since this new coalition government took office in January, um, a leftist coalition, um, even before the coronavirus crisis hit, there was a, there was a huge division, a huge uh, polarization in politics. And that really, really carried over into the, the coronavirus crisis. And it, it really hit a, a new pitch during it. Um, and so almost from the start of the crisis, we were seeing the, the opposition conservative popular party accusing the, the leftist government of lying to Spaniards about the number of cases, about the number of deaths, um, very harsh criticism of its, uh, its overall handling with its preparation in terms of getting protective gear and masks and so on. And just generally there was, there was a very um, vitriolic atmosphere politically throughout the, the crisis. Now, in terms of how Spaniards feel about that, um, th their response, if you look at the polls, their response or their attitude towards the government's handling of this, the central government's handling of this, seems to reflect very much their political affiliation. So a, a left-leaning voter is more likely to, to feel that the government has done, if not a great job, a reasonable job or a, 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 an okay job handling the coronavirus crisis. A right-wing voter um, is more likely to think it's done a very bad job. Um, and that split is, I mean, it's pretty much down the middle if you look at the, the polls. Um, in terms of regional governments and that, and that sort of dynamic, um, that's been a sort of subplot to all of this because there have been certain regions which have been harder hit than others. Um, in particular, I'm thinking of the Madrid region here where I am, um, also Catalonia as well. I mean, here in the Madrid region, there's a conservative regional government in office. Um, that has sometimes been a problem for the um, the national leadership of the Conservative uh, Popular Party because they've been um, accusing the national uh, government of, um, of incompetence. But at the same time, there have been a lot of criticisms of the, the regional government in Madrid. So I, I'd say in terms of the regional issue, there's no one answer. It depends on each region who's governing there. But that has complicated things very much. Um, and it's made it, it a bit more difficult for people to point the finger at one particular party because there are different parties governing in different regions across Spain. So this corona crisis is obviously at the forefront of people's minds as they go to vote. The, just, just for those of us who aren't, aren't familiar with, with the dynamics of the Spanish constitution, um, is these, have these help, has, has the power to make decisions really been vested in, in Pedro Sanchez and, and, and the leftist government, or has it been vested in, in the regional governments themselves? Um, well, right at the beginning of the crisis, when the pandemic started to hit Spain hard in mid-March, um, the central government declared a state of emergency. And that centralised the handling uh, of a lot of areas, most notably healthcare. Now, the Spanish healthcare system is an area which usually is is very decentralized spain has these 17 different regions and one of the powers that all those regions have is power over their own health care now that was re-centralized throughout this crisis for the three months that the the state of emergency or state of alarm as they call it here lasted and in a way that that was quite a controversial move because after a few weeks of that state of emergency, there was criticism again from the opposition saying that the, the government was abusing this power, which had only been ever been used once before in the, in the democratic era. But 
what it meant was that the central government really was coordinating things. And I think that was a shock for many people, or they had to get used to that because, you know, for the last 40 years or so, Spain has been a very decentralized state. It's something that sort of prided itself on, these varying degrees of autonomy for the different 17 regions. Suddenly, a lot of those powers are being re-centralized, and that caused quite a lot of political tension, I think. Now those powers have been devolved again with the lifting of the lockdown, the lifting of the state of emergency, those powers have been devolved again to each of the regional governments. But this was a very, so this was one of the reasons why um, those three months were so unusual for Spain. Now we've got a bit of a, an understanding of, of what is in uh, Spanish minds as they go to vote. Let's actually unpack the, the results. Let's talk about first Pedro Sanchez's several centre-left uh, PSOE party Parties in government never tend to do well in, in regional elections. That tends to be a trend across most countries. In, this, in these elections, PSOE and their affiliated parties manage to sort of keep up appearances and, and keep similar results to previous elections. Will they be content with that result? Um, I mean, the short answer is no. Um, because, I mean, you, you look at the results they got, you compare them to the last elections in 2016 in Galicia and the Basque Country, and, you know, they've really done okay in comparison to those elections. They've sort of held their ground, made slight gains even um, um, in, the, in those two regions compared to 2016. The problem was 2016 was a very poor uh, result um, for the Socialist Party in those two regions. Um, it, was, it was very disappointing. So what the Socialist Party had, had been aiming for this year was to improve on that substantially. And they really didn't do that. Um, the other thing to bear in mind is, um, I think something we'll talk about, about later probably, but it's the, the performance of Podemos, uh, the other leftist party, was very poor, and the socialists were expecting that to be the case, and they had felt that they could capitalise on that and take, take some of the votes that Podemos were losing, and they really didn't manage to do that. So overall, there was a, a feeling of, sort of deflation, a feeling that, okay, they had managed to maintain or hold on to the seats they had, make, make slight gains, but they really had not managed to, um, to make real progress. And also I think Pedro Sanchez, the prime minister, um, you know, him and his team have this idea that being in power, especially being the senior partner in a coalition, um, should actually help them in these kinds of elections. Um, you know, it's broadly seen the, to be the case that the junior partner is going to suffer, but the senior partner their feeling was should benefit from from being the senior partner um, in Madrid and on the on, um, in the national government, um, and they couldn't uh, they, they couldn't uh, find any benefit from that. So the overall feeling was one of um, slight disappointment. Let's just tap into that. The junior partner Podemos have had a very disappointing week with the part their their affiliated parties in, in both regions struggling, particularly in Galicia. Um, where um, Galicia on Commune, the affiliate party, um, tanked uh, the election uh, almost completely. Um, and a lot of voters appeared to move to uh, the sort of left-wing uh, Galicia nationalist movement there. Why mm. are sort of Spanish left-wing, left-leaning voters going away from Podemos at this time? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the Galician result was, was disastrous for... Um, for Podemos, you pointed out there, and also in the Basque country, they perform poorly as well. Um, I mean, the, the, the short answer is that they, Podemos in general has, you could say, been really at war with itself for the last two or three years. It has these constant internal conflicts 
both in Madrid, among the sort of the main leadership, that's been a problem, or less so right now, but it has been a problem in the past. And then they also have these, tend to have these conflicts um, around the periphery, around these, these regions, around the rest of the country, where they, um, they sort of run in um, coalitions or alliances with other local groups and parties. And there's often a sort of, um, uh, there's often a conflict or some, a kind of resentment that the Podemos leadership in Madrid is overreaching and meddling too much um, with the, the regional tickets. That seemed to be the case here. Certainly Galicia, um, the Galician Podemos ticket did see a lot of internal bickering leading up to this. And that seems to have been a major factor. But I think it represents a sort of broader issue of internal conflict in Podemos um, in recent years, um, not just in Galicia, but in, uh, across Spain. Um, and they have been, uh, if you look at their overall results, even in general elections, um, you know, if you look at the, their first general election in 2015, they won 69 seats in the Spanish parliament. In this latest election at the end of last year, they only won 35 seats. Now, that allowed them to get into, into a coalition government for the first time, so they now have real power, but it's their worst uh, general election um, out of the four they have competed in. So there are genuine worries, I think, in Podemos about um, their, their decline in terms of their electoral appeal, both in different regions around the country and also nationwide. Let's move now uh, away from the government. We've talked about that for a little while. Let's look at um, Partido Popular, the centre-right main opposition party on, 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 in Spain on the national level, um, but the governing party uh, in Galicia, who've uh, managed to uh, hold on to their, their significant majority. Now, in the, they stayed, stayed well in, in their stronghold in, in Galicia, but in the Basque country, for the first time, uh, Partido Popular and Ciudadanos, as a sort of a liberal, liberal centre-right party, have run together on a joint ticket for the first time. That shows votes for these two parties have, have halved um, on the previous election result why didn't this coalition turn out to be the success that it was hoped to be? Well, the, the, the Partido Popular has had problems in the Basque country um, for, for years now. Its vote has been declining there. Um, it had hoped that teaming up with Ciudadanos, even though Ciudadanos um, really had no representation there, it was hoping that a joint ticket might broaden its support and somehow um, stop the rot and allow it to, to improve its performance there. And that obviously didn't turn out to be the case. Um, the, a, a lot of criticism of the, of the Partido Popular in the wake of this result has centered on this idea that um, the, that Basque ticket was very much controlled from Madrid. For, it was controlled by Pablo Casado, the, 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 the PP's national leader in Madrid. Um, he was obsessed with this idea of running with Ciudadanos and also obsessed with this idea of doing of running a, a hardline um, campaign, which has, has been very much his style since he took um, control of the party two years ago, being taking a very hard line against the left, a very hard line against Basque nationalism. And to, in doing that, harking back to the years of ETA terrorism, almost presenting um, Basque nationalism as, a, as an ongoing threat and linking it um, to the terrorism of ETA. Um, I should point out that ETA disbanded two years ago. It stopped um, its campaign of violence about a decade ago as well. So 
for many Basques, you know, the issue of ESSA and violence and, and um, radical nationalism, that's really in the past. Um, and there's a feeling that perhaps the PP got left behind there and that they were doing a campaign, that, the kind of campaign that they might have run during the 1990s when um, things were very polarized in the Basque country and ESSA was still killing. But that doesn't really have much of a place now. Um, and it's not going to win many votes um, and voters are worried about other issues. And that, I think, help, helps explain why the PP performs so poorly in the Basque Country. Some commentators have suggested that the Partido Popular and Ciudadanos actually tacked too far to the right in this, in this attempt to be a hard line, while actually successful uh, PP politicians um, on, on the regional level have actually been more centrist type candidates, mm. such as um, Rehu, uh, Fehu in Galicia. Um, what do you think of that analysis? Well, yes, I mean, the, the case of uh, Alberto Núñez Feijó in, in Galicia is a, is a really interesting one because you know, he's won his fourth majority in a row. He's been president of Galicia since 2009. He's absolutely dominated there um, since then. We were expecting him to win again. The only question was, would he be able to get yet another majority? He did. And the interesting thing is, when he was campaigning in, in this campaign, he really distanced himself from the party machinery and from all the symbolism of the PP. Um, he almost ran on his own brand, um, distancing himself um, from, the, from the party. Um, and he is seen as uh, a moderate figure. And so he's occupying sort of so much of that space, not just on the right, but center right and towards the center as well. And um, the fact that he won so clearly yet again, for many people have seen that as an implicit sort of, um, criticism of the way that Pablo Casado has been handling the, the popular party from Madrid, that this hardline um, approach um, to, to the, the, uh, the government, to Basque and Catalan nationalism, it doesn't work with voters and that he should look to someone like Fejo, um, who takes a more moderate approach um, and follow that because it's, it could well be that that will give him more votes um, in a general election and, and in other elections as well. A lot of commentators, you know, there's been rumours that this uh, cooperation between uh, the Popular Party and Sijadanos uh, was something of a, a litmus test for uh, mm. further cooperation on, on, on the national level in the future. What do you think this result will mean for that? Well, obviously, the, the, the Partido Popular really didn't benefit from this at all. Ciudadanos um, haven't sort of given them anything extra in, in this result. But Ciudadanos have benefited because they're now in the, in the Basque uh, regional parliament. So for them, it's been quite a good result because they didn't have representation before. Um, the, the obvious sort of election that they're, they're both looking to now is a Catalan election coming up at some time, almost certainly later this year. We don't know the date of it yet, but in the, in the autumn or the winter, we're going to see another election. Now, in the last election in Catalonia, Ciudadanos won. It was the, the party that won the most seats and the most votes. It was, a, a, you know, quite a surprise. It beat all the nationalist parties, certainly beat the PP and the socialists. Um, and... I think the PP, the PP, which performed quite poorly, um, really wants to, to do better in Catalonia. Catalonia is so crucial at the moment in terms of national politics, the Catalan independence issue, that the PP wants to get its foot back in the door there, where it's really been marginalised. So I think it, 
carried out this, um, what you, you know, what you call litmus test um, in, in the Basque country with a view to Catalonia and hoping uh, to sort of piggyback on Ciudadanos' uh, popularity there um, later in the year. What we don't know is how Ciudadanos will perform this time round um, in, in, the, in the upcoming election in Catalonia. Um, obviously, that's another story. But that is the idea that the PP has. It's always a very exciting place to end an interview on thinking about a future election. Um, so I thank you for that. And I will all be paying, I think, really close attention to Spanish regional politics and what that can mean and what that will mean for the next few years of Pedro Sanchez's government, um, however long it lasts. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, guys. It's been really, really interesting. Um, and I'm sure we'll have you on again to talk about more Spanish politics in the future. Well, thank you very much, you, and it's been an absolute pleasure. So it's with mixed emotions, guys. I'm going to introduce the last ever Who's Who segment of the Europe Likes podcast. And there's no other way really to, to end this segment than to discuss the grand lady of the commission herself, Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission. I'm going to let you, uh, you, you've done some research into her personal life and career. So I'm going to let you kick off with that. And then I'm going to do some fun, cheesy summary of what policies she's trying to pursue with her commission. Yeah, so Ursula von der Leyen has had a life quite extraordinary and quite interesting researching it. So she is a, a German citizen. She's a member of uh, the European People's Party uh, and the Christian Democratic Union in Germany, as many of you know. And so naturally she is the German representative on the European Commission. But von der Leyen was born in Brussels in Belgium um, to German parents, where her father, Ernst Albrecht, had taken a job working as a civil servant in the newly created European Commission. You might have heard of it. When she was 13, her family moved back to West Germany, where her father eventually served as a CDU politician himself, spending some 24 years as Minister President of Lower Saxony. 24 years in the yeah. same job. That never happens Gosh. in politics. He did, however, narrowly miss out on becoming the CDU's nominee for the West German Chancellorship in 1980, though maybe it was for the best because the CDU's actual nominee didn't actually win that election. Von der Leyen studied economics at university, but was forced to flee to the UK to escape a plot to kidnap her by dissident communists. So that's, that's, an, that's enough yeah, life for one person. That's in wild. A, in and of its own right. Yeah. She finished her degree in London before returning to Germany to attend medical school in Hanover. She worked as a medic until 1992, where she gave birth to twins and moved to California, while her husband Heiko worked as a teacher at Stanford University. Upon returning to Germany in 1998, she worked as a medical school teacher teaching public health, which is obviously a very convenient thing to know a lot about at the moment. Um, so she's clearly been preparing her whole life for this job. Then let's get on to her political career. In 2003, she entered politics by being elected to the parliament of Lower Saxony, where she was immediately appointed a minister in the regional government. From 2005, she worked under Angela Merkel in the national shadow cabinet, ahead of the federal elections, and then serving as a minister once Chancellor Merkel was elected for family affairs and youth. Then in the 2009 election, von der Leyen was elected for the first time to the Bundestag, the lower house of the German national parliament, where she was soon appointed minister for labor and social affairs. 
move on to 2013 when she was promoted to the position of defense minister, becoming the first woman to ever hold that position in German history. She held that position and her position as deputy leader, which she had gained in 2010, uh, until being appointed president of the European Commission in 2019 after lengthy negotiations. That appointment was quite controversial at the time and was subject of a lot of speculation, but she was seen as a more acceptable candidate to S&D and uh, RE Renew Europe members of the new European Commission than the actual EPP Spitzenkandidat at the last election, Manfred Weber. Yeah, and I guess that showed how important those Spitzenkandidats <laughs> debates were. Really did well for the Spitzenkandidat system there. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners will know this, but in case they don't, the EU Commission is the executive branch of the European Union, obviously headed by a president that leads a cabinet, or as it's really called, a college of commissioners. And all those commissioners, they're the ones we've been banging on about for the past dozen episodes or so of the Europe Alex podcast. The post of European commissioner, as we know it today, was established in 1958. And it's really the most powerful position uh, across the European Union's institutions. Van der Leyen is the 13th president of the EU Commission since the establishment of the European Economic Community and the first woman to be in the position as well. Commission presidents, they're nominated by the European Council, which is made up of all the uh, heads of governments of the EU member states. And then they're formally elected by the European Parliament for a five-year term. And once they're elected, the president of the commission is in charge of determining the executive policy agenda for the EU. And von der Leyen, she approached this by boiling the work down into six sort of policy areas. She calls them headline ambitions. And those are a European Green Deal, a Europe fit for a digital age, an economy that works for people, stronger Europe in the world, promoting our European way of life, which was slightly controversial, and a new push for European democracy, which obviously is on purpose made to be very broad and uh, consensus driven. And then the work of the commissioners and their specific portfolios will fall under one of those six headings. And obviously they represent a bunch of different parties with different ideological profiles from across the continent. but they're still given a mandate by uh, von der Leyen in terms of what their, what their goals are. So I thought it'd be funny just to end with, because I was looking through, there's like a 24-page document that von der Leyen produced when she was campaigning to be elected as commissioner, outlining all of her thoughts and what she wants to do. And I guess it can be summed up by this very fluffy sentence. Europe must lead the transition to a healthy planet and a new digital world, but it can only do so by bringing people together and upgrading our unique social market economy to fit today's new ambitions. How beautiful is that? So beautiful. I love to write sentences which don't mean anything. It's truly, <laughs> truly, truly very exciting. Um, but that being said, as they said, they do. it's the executive branch like all meaningful policy proposals come from the commission. So while there is a lot of fluff in order to accommodate all these different people and all these different interests, 
it is really where the power lies, although a lot of the negotiation and, and the actual debate happens in the background or within the institutions themselves. Uh, and as you say, especially von der Leyen was elected as a compromise candidate, so he might make it even more fluffy than it would have otherwise been if, for example, there was a left-leaning majority in the EU parliament. Absolutely. Well, we hope you've enjoyed listening to us ramble on about European commissioners over the last 16 episodes. I think we're on episode 16 now. And you'll have to tune in in the next episode to find out what our next Who is Who segment is going to be about and what will come after the commission edition. Thank you for listening to the Europe Elects podcast. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. And also to stay up to date with European politics, um, you sort of have to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You can find us at europelex.eu and at europelex across all social media, except uh, Instagram, that is. There we're at europe underscore lex. Um, thank you so much again and see you next time. You've been listening to the Europelex podcast hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and Gabriel Hedenbrook. The managing editor was Polychronis Karempolis. The producer and audio engineers were Raphael Peña-Rios and Leon Liesener. The script was written by our host and Matthew Nicholson. And the music was by Jose Alvarado. Sounded great to me.